Hi, welcome back to the Beyond Walls podcast, the podcast from Theatre Pass Marai, which quite fittingly means Beyond Walls. This is an Egg Rolls with Andy podcast. Egg Rolls with Andy is our chance to speak with a local expert or public intellectual, someone who can shed light onto a theme we're exploring in the play. In this case, the play is Alien Creature, a visitation from Gwendolyn McEwen by Linda Griffiths. <laughs> On this, our 50th anniversary celebration production of Alien Creature, we have the chance to sit down with filmmaker Brenda Longfellow. So, here's Andy McKim in conversation with Brenda Longfellow. This evening is Brenda Longfellow. She's an associate professor of cinema and media studies in the Department of Film at York University and an award-winning filmmaker. She's published articles on documentary, feminist film theory, and Canadian cinema. She's a co-editor of the anthology The Perils of Pedagogy, the works of John Grayson, and Gendering the Nation, Canadian Women Filmmakers. Her documentaries have been screened and broadcast internationally, winning prestigious awards, including Best Cultural Documentary for Tina in Mexico at the Havana International Film Festival. Most importantly for us tonight, she won a genie for her documentary, Shadowmaker, Gwendolyn McEwen, Poet. So, welcome to Egg Rolls, Brenda. Thank you. Can you talk to us about the meaning of the title, Shadowmaker, which is the name of the book and also the name of the film? Um, what I thought I would do is just read you. It's a very short poem by Gwendolyn called Shadowmaker. Um, and I'll just read it to you. You'll get a sense of uh, a little bit about Gwendolyn. I have come to possess your darkness, only this. My legs surround your block, wrestle it, as the flames of day wrestle night. And everywhere you paint the necessary shadows on my flesh and darken the fibers of my nerve. Without these shadows, I would be in air, one wave of ruinous light. And night with many mouths would close around my infinite and sterile curve. Shadow maker, create me everywhere. Dark spaces, your face is my chosen abyss. For I said I have come to possess your darkness, only this. So she, in this poem, I think, um, what she's talking about is you need the darkness in order to see the light. If you only had light, you would miss a lot of detail. And so she had this conception, you know, kind of bardic poet conception, that the vocation of the poet was to go places where other people could not go. So it's kind of what her, what her sense of poetry was all about. And Shadowmaker was also the title of this wonderful biography. I know you're going to fall in love with Gwendolyn, and there's so many things you can do after the play. Um, but Rosemary Sullivan wrote this beautiful, beautiful biography of Gwendolyn, which inspired my documentary. And her piece is also called Shadowmaker. So that's a kind of evolution of the title of Shadowmaker. When I watched your documentary, Shadowmaker, which I really loved, and you'll enjoy seeing it because there's a lot of period footage and a lot of footage of Gwendolyn and direct commentary from people who knew her, 
one of whom I know, Jim Polk. I was pleased to see him <laughs> there. Um, I was struck by how patronizing the male television interviewers are. There's a healthy mix of men and women who have interviewed over the years. And uh, I'm probably projecting, I'll admit that, but they seem to be suspicious of her. And it seems that her age, her gender, and the fact that she's an artist all alarm suspicions in some of her male uh, interviewers. And your film opens with an interviewer asking Gwendolyn why she left school at the age of 18. And she says it was to focus on her writing. He then tries to trip her up and says, quote, and yet you're spending more time at places like the Bohemian Embassy, as if that was a waste of time. And Gwendolyn's really calm answer for a 19-year-old explained the artistic relevance of the Bohemian Embassy, and I thought that showed how clear-headed she was, how focused she was, how self-assured she was in this 1960 interview, the age of 19. So. I just wondered if you could talk about her at that age, how self-possessed she was, and then take us to the Bohemian Embassy and its okay. importance in the airport. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, the, we found so many treasures in the CBC, and one of them was this interview with Gwendolyn, who looks, she was 19, but she looks like she's maybe 15. She has a very cherubic, round, beautiful face, long hair, and she's got this very kind of prim jumper on. And she tells the interviewer, um, he asks, he's kind of appalled that this young woman would leave school. Um, and she said, I had to, it was interfering with my writing. That even at that tender age, and she goes on in the interview to say, he asks her, well, what else have you written? You've written some poems. What else have you written? And she says, I've written a couple of novels, a play, uh, and a screenplay, and several you know, poems. And I think what, what is so extraordinary about it is that she knew by the age of 11 or 12 that she wanted to be a writer. I mean, there's very few people in this world who understand what their vocation is that early, but she did. And school was not fulfilling her destiny, and she knew very, or had this, this sense very early that she had this destiny to fulfill, which to be a poet and a writer. And school was interfering with it, so she decided to leave school. And she was incredibly disciplined. I mean, this wasn't someone who you know, left high school to hang out downtown, although that's what the interviewer was kind of intimating. She left to become a writer. And the Bohemian Embassy was this kind of extraordinary place in Toronto, which was started by Don Cullen, who some of you might remember uh, he was a comedian. If you ever watched Wayne and Schuster, which I did as a kid, um, you would recognize him. He was a very well-known comedian in the kind of 70s and 80s. But he was working as a clerk at the CBC, and he decided, you know, Toronto, we're talking 1968. Uh, Toronto is a pretty boring place. It was called Hogtown. Um, on Sundays, things would close down. It was hard to get wine with your dinner. It was very uptight, very Presbyterian, very repressed. Um, and what was starting to happen were these ideas that were seeping into Hogtown about other ways of being and other ways of doing art and connecting to wider international kind of trends. And he had this idea that he wanted to start a, a kind of space of what? where there wouldn't be alcohol, but there would be jazz, there would be poetry reading, there would be happenings, there would be, it would be kind of a, a hub. 
And it was just, it was in a warehouse just off Young and Wellesley. Um, and apparently, you walked into it. Margaret Atwood describes it as a fire trap. And you walked into it. You went up two stairs to the fire trap. There were no banisters. It was a little precarious. And it was, the walls were painted black. There were candles in Chianti bottles. There was red, just as you'd imagine. There were red check tablecloths. And of course, everyone smoked. So you could hardly see anything. Your eyes stung because there was a, a heavy cloud of cigarette smoke everywhere. And it became this incredible mecca and hub for anybody <coughs> who had any intimation of being counterculture at that point where there was only a very few people who were part of what one would describe as the counterculture. And poetry was Thursday night, but Saturday there was jazz. And we actually found this footage, I was telling Andy, uh, the CBC recorded the first happening in Toronto in 1960 at the Bohemian Embassy, and you see people reading poetry in a bathtub, and a woman dancing, and someone playing the violin. And this, in the audience, you actually saw um, black people, uh, a couple of men, because the other thing that the Bohemian Embassy did was it sponsored jazz. So there was a lot of jazz. Saturday night was jazz. Um, the first uh, Jean, Genet, uh, Jean Genet play opened there. I think the first play by David French also opened there. So it became this incredible kind of hub. But for the poetry scene, which was really just starting, you know, Margaret Atwood talks about, you know, there's really only a few forebears in the area. But it became for this other generation, the generation of people, post-war people, Michael Andachi, Margaret Atwood, Joe Rosenblatt, B.P. Nichol, uh, David Dunnell, all of these people who kind of came of age in this period hung out at the Bohemian Embassy. And you could go to these poetry readings, typically they would start at 10 o'clock at night, and they would go to 4 in the morning. And they were also raided by the police, they were very suspicious of this place, but it didn't serve alcohol, so they were somehow protected um, because it was the first place, and Margaret Atwood tells this great story in our film about it was the first place that had the first espresso machine in Toronto. <laughs> and the stage was here, the toilet was there. So if you had to go to the toilet, you'd have to walk in front of the poet who was reading. There was no lock on the door, so you had to learn how to pee and hold the door at the same time. And while you're earnestly reading your poetry, you'd hear the sound of somebody flushing and the espresso machine going in the background. So it was really, it was an extraordinary place. And it was really one of these kind of condensations of people who sought each other out and quickly formed the nucleus of this extraordinary literary community that you know, we all began to know about in the later 60s and 70s. Yeah. And I don't know if you folks are familiar, but in, on Queen West, there was recently a condo uh, that went up to some great um, discord, and uh, people were upset because the condo was called the Bohemian Embassy. And um, the next question I wanted to ask was about maybe that problem we have in Toronto uh, that seems to carry through the decades. So it seems that Gwendolyn was very aware of how difficult it is for an artist to live in the city. And for us doing this show, it was extraordinarily ironic that during the rehearsals for the show, 
Richmond 401, which is a place that houses nothing but four floors of independent, not-for-profit arts enterprises, and was designed to be a place that was low rent by the woman who owns the building, suddenly got hit with these extraordinary tax increases, and so everyone was going to have to pay way more, couldn't afford it, and they're all going to have to move out. So it seems like nothing changes when it comes to marginalizing the artists, which actually are, the, in some ways, a heart, a soul of the city, and are part of the city's revitalization. So can you talk about Gwendolyn's experiences of marginalization uh, in financial terms, and maybe otherwise, other ways you think she's marginalized, and how that relates to how artists might feel marginalized today? Yeah, um, there are many ways that I think Gwendolyn always felt she was a foreigner. And she felt she was a foreigner because she wanted to live in a world that was full of romance, sensuality, mythic beings. She was searching for archetypes. She was heavily into reading um, Robert Graves. So in, in many ways, and that was certainly a part of the counterculture at the time, um, she didn't see herself as part of Hogtown or, or Toronto the Good or white Presbyterian repressed Toronto. Who would want to feel themselves a part of that? She really felt, she had this prescient vision of what Toronto could be, this vibrant center where many cultures come together. Um, she was someone who actually made a living from poetry for quite a while. Um, but unlike her, her peers, unlike Margaret Atwood and Ondachi, she never really graduated to that second stage where they were able to make a lot of money doing different kinds of stuff, doing novels, etc. Her novels were not successful. She was really, truly a poet. And even though she did endeavor to write novels, they were never as successful as her poetry. But what began, this was a woman who won every award you could win in the literary scene. She won the Governor General's Award. Um, but she never took a teaching job, as many people did. She never went into the academy. She didn't take up an administrative position as a way to support herself. She really felt she could live on writing forever. And of course, poetry is probably, I mean, I think it's probably the poorest paid of all artistic endeavors. And it was getting, as time went on, and especially when we got into the 80s and Toronto began to change, and it became more of a kind of a moneyed city, and you had real estate developers taking over and calling the shots, which is you know, a lot of what happens at 401 Richmond, et cetera, is about, well, who's making these kind of decisions about taxes? And there's a famous story that Rosemary Sullivan tells of Gwendolyn, who's living on next to nothing, and who, who was always very judicious about how she spent her money and very frugal, and you know she was really, um, you know, Salvation Army clothes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but at one point, she was just getting desperate, and she went into a bank in the latter part of the 80s to ask for a loan to just help her finish this next book of poetry. And they turned her down. She had no collateral. Her bank account was empty. And she went back to her house, took all of her 20 books of poetry, walked into the bank and said, there, I did that. Give me my money. They didn't. <laughs> Needless to say. Needless to say. Um, I wanted to pick up on something you said, because I find that her search for a 
culture here in Toronto is such a powerful and prescient and perceptive quest. She never seems to find herself completely at home in Toronto, but she does recognize that Toronto is changing in the 60s and that the broad variety of new cultures coming in from around the world will be Toronto's salvation. Even then she understood this. And I love in the film you include uh, Morley Callahan, who's interviewing her, and he's, he's talking about her loyalty to Toronto and challenging it. And he says, and I quote, you like what you call the new Toronto, but you have no affection at all for the solid citizens of Toronto who were here, say, 50 years ago. The people who really have, let us face it, really made Toronto, end quote. And I found it really hard to hear that with today's ears, but I thought it was really important as a context for the life and times she was living in, for her work, for her reaction to that place, and a useful memory for us as a reference point today. So can you talk both about what it was like then and what her imagination and uh, prescient seeing of what would come were like? Yeah, it was, I, I, I found, you know, I rewatched the film. And you can see the film, by the way, if you want to go to the Hot Dogs Library. It's in the Hot Dogs Library. It's free. It's online. You can watch it. So I hadn't watched it for quite a while. It was made in 98. And I think we'll have it linked for you on our oh, website under, under uh, Alien Creature. Yeah. But of course, given what's happening on Friday with the Trump inauguration, and when I came to that scene about, about Morley Callahan talking about this good, solid Toronto, the you know, white denizens who started Toronto, it really made me think about how we often create these fantasy histories about origins. And, and that was certainly a fantasy history. There are always immigrants in Toronto. It was never completely white. There were Portuguese, Kensington Market, um, where Gwendolyn lived for part of the time she lived here, had a lot of Portuguese. She eventually married a Greek man who was part of the wave of Greek um, refugees who came in who were fleeing the junta, Nikos Singles. Um, and spent a lot of time on the Danforth, which was completely Greek, started the Trojan Horse, which was, became another boat, um, where a lot of uh, Chilean musicians hung out and, and played music. Those were her kind of affinities. It was to these other people coming into the city. Uh, one of her first very passionate loves was for an Egyptian who came as a young man, and both, the, I mean, I think it's just so fascinating her, her passion for the other, which was not without its kind of orientalizing elements, yes. but nonetheless, she was a high romantic. And one of her lovers was Sela, who was from Egypt. Both Sela and Nikos, when she was passionately involved in both of them, didn't speak a word of English. And Nikos actually talks, well, we communicated with our bodies. And eventually she learned Greece, and he learned English. But for a long time, it was the communication was language or dictionaries and just this kind of incredible empathy that she had for these other cultures. So that was part of it was, was her feeling of being drawn toward the other. But she was also an incredible scholar. 
She taught herself Amorek. She went to Egypt. She was writing this book, King of Egypt, King of Dreams. She spent time in libraries um, learning hieroglyphics. Um, part of, I think, her affinity and love of those kind of cultures was they were, for her, Mithopian cultures. They were the first cultures. They were the cultures that held these archetypes. So there was that that was drawing her. But it was also, I think, this incredible kind of openness to, to others, to people who had trajectories that weren't safe, to ha who had trajectories that wasn't just about middle class security or upward mobility or consumerism. I mean, she was the most anti-materialist person in the world. I mean, that, that's, that's hard, too. It's hard to live in the 80s when you're in your 40s. Um, without any kind of material security. It's one thing to do in your 20s, but it's really very difficult to do, I think, when you get older. You came armed with a quote from Margaret Atwood, so I wanted to give you a chance to read that. Um, this is one of the things that um, really distinguished Gwen, and our, everybody I interviewed talked about this, was that when she came into the Bohemian Embassy and she was this beautiful, angelic-looking 19-year-old. People looking at her didn't take her seriously. She was wearing weird clothes. She wore a lot of coal on her eyes. Um, but as soon as she got up to speak, she had this incredible, sensual, beautifully bodied voice. And this is the way that Margaret Atwood wrote a short story, and it's a kind of a tribute to Gwen. So I'll just read you a tiny bit of it. It was a warm, rich voice, darkly spiced, like cinnamon and too huge to be coming from such a small person. It was a seductive voice, but not in any blunt way. What it offered was an entree to amazement, to a shared and tingling secret to splendors. But there was an undercurrent of amusement too, as if you were a fool for being taken in by its voluptuousness, as if there was a cosmic joke in the offing, a simple, mysterious joke, like the jokes of children. Um, in the documentary, Linda Griffiths is the voice for Gwendolyn McEwen. Gwendolyn McEwen would long have been dead, obviously, when you did the documentary. And it was really a satisfying choice for me listening to it, especially listening, looking and listening to it now. So producing Alien Creature for us this season is a celebration of Linda as an artist. And her play about Gwendolyn is appropriately subtitled A Visitation. She wanted to evoke Gwendolyn, I think and who she was as a person, and she was not interested in creating a biography. And I think also, Jenny, the director, and Bea, the actor, and all the rest of us, thought of the play as not just a visitation from Gwendolyn, but for us, a visitation from Linda, Linda Griffiths. Um, so I wondered if you could talk about Linda as an artist. You knew her, you met her, and um, uh, what she means to you as a feminist as well. Um, the first time I saw Linda was in uh, Maggie and Pierre when I was uh, uh, living in Ottawa. And it was just the most incredible play I'd ever seen. It was kind of the height of Trudeau mania, and she so captured it. She was such a brilliant performer. And um, I didn't know her well. I mean, we, I, I worked with her on two films. She actually did the narration for the first film I ever did 
our Marilyn, which was about Marilyn Bell uh, swimming across Lake Ontario in 1954. That's also online if you ever want to watch that. And Linda read Marilyn's voice in that, and I so loved her voice. I think like Gwendolyn's, she had an aura, Linda had an aura that was what I imagine very similar to Gwendolyn's. This incredible, precise intelligence uh, and this voice that carried this intelligence but in this completely um, commanding way. I mean, there was authority, but there was a voluptuousness to it too. So I think, I think her voice was just perfect for, for us when we were designing uh, the documentary. She just had a, I couldn't think of anybody else who could render that quality of Gwendolyn's voice so intimately and so well, and I, I think she did. Mm -hmm. I did want to send out props to you as well. There are these women in stages. So there's Gwendolyn, and then there is you, and then there is Linda, and then there's Jannie and, and Bea. And each of you brought something important and resonant, and it felt like each of you was communicating back and forth with each other. It's this extraordinary set of lenses that help us understand what Gwendolyn was interested in and, and, and was inspired by. It seems similar to all of you. To conclude, is there a piece of Gwendolyn's that you'd like to focus on or maybe share with us, a poem or a book or something that really is particularly meaningful for you? Sure. Um, I think for me, it's the why we were all drawn to Gwendolyn. And I think we were drawn to Gwendolyn because she had to develop her own voice and carve out a whole new territory. This was before feminism really hit. So we're talking about the 60s. This is a world that was dominated by men. Um, it's a world where there were very few other women role models for women coming up. So one of the reasons why she and Atwood were such close friends was it was the two of them were mavericks trying to figure out how do you be in this environment? And remember, this is a period when um, you had advice about going out with your girdle and white gloves, when even if you were drawn to the counterculture, you were far more considered to be the beatnik mall, that your role was to be the lover or the muse, but you weren't necessarily expected to be an artist in your own right. And for Gwendolyn, as much as for Margaret Atwood, I think they were so extraordinary in trying to carve this new kind of way of being as a female artist, as a female writer, in a way that wasn't about making compromises. It wasn't just uh, supporting a man, but it was trying to find their own voice. And that was in a period where they became role models for other people. So I think it's that that quality of bravery and that quality of kind of singularity that Gwendolyn had. And uh, the title of uh, Linda's play is so apt because she was otherworldly. She was an alien creature. There's not too many people who realize at 12 that their vocation is to be a bardic poet and to go into dark places where no one else should be going. Um, and for her courage, and for her ability to take so many other people with her through the beauty of her writing. I think that's how I'd like to remember her. Fabulous. Well, I'd like to thank you very much, Brenda. You've welcome. given us an awful lot to reflect on and to take away with us, both into the play as we watch it and then after the play, to reflect back on the play with, with your words. And I would encourage you 
to take a look at uh, Brenda's film. It's extraordinary. And then you'll go from it to the rest of her oeuvre, I'm sure. Thank you very much for coming. That was Andy McKim in conversation with Brenda Longfellow at Egg Rolls with Andy for Alien Creature, a visitation from Gwendolyn McEwen. Alien Creature just plays until February 5th. It's not too long, so we encourage you to make it down. On February 5th, at the 2 p.m. performance, there will also be an audio-described performance, and this is something that we are offering for partially sighted and blind patrons. It's delivered through uh, a small earpiece and a small receiver. You can think of it kind of like a companion piece to the entire show. Alien Creatures, written by Linda Griffiths. It's directed by Jani Lozon. stars Beatrice Pisano. Music and sound design by Deanna Choi. Lighting and set design by Trevor Schwellness. Projection design by Melissa Joachim. Costume design by Amanda Wong. It's stage managed by Eric Mori. With magic consultancy by Chris Turchi. Design assistant is Sebastian Marziali. And there's additional special effects by Joey Mori. Now, you've heard a lot of stuff in that show, so maybe I'm giving a bit of it away. Maybe you just want to come check it out even more. Let's hope the latter. I'm Jim Paris, and I'm the associate artistic producer at Theatre Pass Mariah. Thanks very much for downloading, streaming, or whatever you're accessing this podcast. We hope to see you at the theater soon.